Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Calm week of news for Arsenal means there's plenty of room to continue to laugh at United. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, the good man, Twitter, Yankee Gunner. We are going to talk Arsenal, of course. We are going to look ahead to the Bournemouth match. Um, talk a little bit about the documentary, somewhat spoiler-free, because I realize it's um, too early for most people to have seen it. Maybe just a couple of things that I want to tease out of what we saw there, uh, bigger thematic ideas. And, um, and yeah, we might as well laugh at United because... We had plenty of years where there was no possible way to laugh at United, and they are really giving us the opportunity. I do want to say, though, if you um, are hearing my voice right now and Manchester United haven't at least inquired about signing you, you should look into why that is because something is wrong with you. If you are an IT billionaire, if you are uh, part of the Twitterati and you haven't offered to potentially um, buy Manchester United in a drunken fit, of hysteria, then then again, you're missing an opportunity. Just want to stress that. So lots to get to. We did a rewatch, some Schadenfreude, some all or nothing stuff over on the Patreon side. Paul and Scott have a new concept called Stats Guy and the Civilian, and I think they had their best one yesterday. So that's available um, in video and audio format. We are going to now have a regular standing academy pod on the Patreon side of things too. So we continue to try to make that worthwhile. The thing I want to say is that um, we did just sort of cross a fun threshold in terms of the number of people that signed up. And like, I found myself getting really overwhelmed by it. It, it, it obviously speaks to the quality of Paul and Tim and Clive uh, and Scott and the other people that come on from time to time, like uh, Lewis and of course, Phil and uh, Matt Giant Gooner. But what it means is that we've done something that you feel strongly about, that you care about enough to sign up and do that. And we take that responsibility really seriously. We we try not to let anybody down. And at the same time, I totally understand from the moment we started that, that there are going to be people that either don't have any interest in signing up for that or can't. And so I've always wanted to make sure that these pods are always here and always deliver uh, and you always enjoy them. And so I, I just want to say, as I always do, we really love you. And it is like the joy of my life to be able to be a part of this. So thank you for letting me have that uh, in whatever way you have allowed that to happen. And um, with that said, our gift to you today is no Clive. Clive's not here today, uh, but he will be back very, very soon. Who is here today is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo! Who is very, very quiet, I should mention. And Tim, you can find him on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Before this goes uh, the wrong direction quickly, Paul, can you just uh, say hello to everybody so that I can ensure that those people will then be able to hear your audio? Hello, hello, hello. You are exceedingly quiet, which, I mean, to be fair, you know, like maybe it will just encourage you to bring more energy and enthusiasm to it uh, through volume. Increase my levels. There we go. 
that is more like the level that we need. Um, this is a bit like the live show when you tried to talk to 900 people without a microphone. <laughs> Paul is obsessed with and convinced by his ability to talk to people digitally with no use of I had so of much trouble with my microphone last time. You basically turned it into my section because uh, it went on for about three minutes and then never came back to me with an actual football question because you felt I'd really had my moment in the sun. So, that, that, you know, I mean, that's right. <laughs> if, if you use up your time with technical uh, issues, then I'm your time now. has been used up. Uh, we're going to start, though, first, Tim, with, with a really special um, experience you got to have at London Colney. And I don't want to say too much about it other than to kind of let you explain, but you got to meet some players uh from the women's team and and a few from the, the the men's team as well for a very special occasion. So you want to let people know what happened and maybe a few of the, the tidbits that people might find interesting? Yeah, sure. So on Monday, um, the three Arsenal women players, Leah Williamson, Beth Mead and Lotta Wubamoy, who won the Euros, all came back to training, as did Arsenal women's Brazilian player, Rafaeli, who won the Copa America, uh, in fact, captain Brazil to the Copa America this summer. And they all came back to training. So Arsenal arranged like a really nice... I mean, I don't want to say an event, but like a bit of a fuss basically over those players. And and what we did at Colney, um, and I'll get on to why I was there <laughs> in a minute, but they basically formed a guard of honour for them um, as they came into training on Monday morning. And it was the whole women's squad and all the staff and all of the men's squad and the staff. And you had Vinay there um, as well. Mikel Arteta was there Um and, and yeah, like basically, you know, the Arsenal family. Edu wasn't because we know he was in Valencia. Um, and uh, yeah, so men's squad, women's squad, big kind of round of applause, big kind of, you know, a uh, little bit of mingling, a little bit of um, showing the medals off and all of that. And some really sweet moments like between Aaron Ramsdale and Beth Mead. Um, a video of which you can see online on the Arsenal Women Twitter feed, uh, Leah Williamson, Bukayo Saka, etc., etc. Um, I was invited along with, I think, seven other, uh, seven others, um, not as a journalist, actually, but as a fan. So Arsenal basically invited eight people that they considered either to be long-term champions of the women's team or people who did good community work um, in North London and surrounding areas around uh, girls and women's football. So we were there as well. Um, and it was really nice because, like, I, I I know all four of the players um, pretty well as well. So got to have, like, a bit of a chat with all of them, got to try the medals on and everything like that, <laughs> um, which was really nice. And then Arsenal just arranged for each of us, eight people, to have, like, a photo taken with them. And, um, you know, I have a shirt for my daughter with uh, Viv's name on the back, which she kindly signed for me as well. Oh, um, so, yeah, just just a really nice day. And uh, I guess like um, in terms of tidbits and insights, um, two, two things. One, I think quite personal to me. They basically, like in this guard of honour, the women's squad were there first. Then they put the eight of us and they were just like, just go and mingle. So I just stood next to some players I, I vaguely know. And then the men's squad came in afterwards. And it just so happens that the men's players that stood next to me were Gabriel Jesus, Gabriel Martinelli, <laughs> Marquinhos. Um, Cedric was there as well. Um, un- unfortunately, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Cedric as well. So uh, and, and El Nenny. So, you know, like... Other than El Neni, obviously, who was more on the periphery of this little group, obviously Portuguese-speaking group, and they came. And um, the thing is, um, I was asked by Arsenal to wear like Arsenal gear. 
Arsenal mm-hmm. Adidas gear because it's all going on the website and that's fine. And obviously I have plenty of that. So I think they just assumed I worked there because I was dressed like someone who worked there. Um, and, and like Gabriel Martinelli came past and he said hello and Gabriel Jesus said hello. So I responded to them in Portuguese because I just thought this is my moment. I have to do this. <laughs> uh, so I just had like, when I say I had a chat with them, they just asked me why the hell I speak Portuguese. So I explained it and blah, that was it. But um, that's still awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. And they probably still think I work there. <laughs> I'm like, who was that guy? <laughs> um, yeah. But the other, the other, sorry, the, the, the other thing I, I wanted to kind of point out as well was at first, because they knew the shot was going to take a little while to set up and that the, the players weren't going to come out, they just like, they like, oh, go and stand over there in the shade next to like the dressing rooms. And this was the point when the men's team came out and you just look behind and they all start um, emerging. And and look, I, I don't want to over-index this because it's, it's, it's a real micro moment, but I do think it's a little bit revealing. Obviously, we're just like eight or nine strangers. Well, no, we know knew each other, but we're just like eight or nine strange people dressed in Arsenal gear standing there. I agree with that. These people yeah. don't, don't recognise. But um, it was Granit Xhaka out first, and he was like, the, he came over and shook everyone's hand and said good morning um, to everyone. And that, and that, you know, like, because we talk about and we hear about, like, what Xhaka's like on the training ground and what, like, a model professional he is and stuff like that. And look, like I say, like, coming over and shaking, like, some stranger's hands, that's, you know, that doesn't mean he's the best player in the world or anything or blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you really got that sense that this was a guy who, like, prided himself on, like, being, like, proper, you know, and, like, yeah. being a good representative and being a good like he didn't have to do like no and when i say no one else did that like i wouldn't expect them to do that but do you know what i mean like no i get when, it yeah when someone walks in and they just they just make sure that everyone feels welcome and part of the team and we didn't speak to him again and he has i probably had no idea who we were and like no impression on him or anything like that but yeah i just thought that was an interesting tidbit like they're like standing with the men's squad which was very surreal but he he like yeah, Jesus and Martinelli, because they happened to be standing near me, said hello, and that was just a tremendous coincidence for me. But it was it was Jacques who was the one that that like actually went out of his way to come up to everyone, and I do think that says a little something, and and probably confirms a lot of the things that we hear about him. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it lines up with the documentary as well, right? Like, you, and I realize that's much more of a scripted narrative than we're led to believe, but you see that a lot of these guys are good guys, and he's certainly. One of the good guys. I think uh, it. I'll veer off just for a second to say that I think one of the hard things is you realize that whether they're good guys or not may influence how much you want to root for them, but it it can only very slightly be a part of the question about building a squad and and whether they're good enough. And I mean, like, because here's the thing, Tim. If Arsenal signed you tomorrow to play striker, starting number nine, let's use some of the the platitudes right that are thrown out you would try really hard you would care a hell of a lot you'd be a really good guy that the fans could like and get behind and none of that would matter because you'd be shit you'd be utter shit not close to good enough for arsenal and so like like i mean like give, really he really hasn't terrible. played elliot I, i'm already so- putting him this is so typical of you he hasn't even he hasn't had a proper preseason. <laughs> 
He's and like, this is typical of you. We've got a mid thirties guy who's played no football, and you're like, he could be fine. Let's at least but find thank, out. Thanks for saying mid thirties. You have done me a favor there. I, I could be the new Lacazette. I could be a good guy in the training ground, but I can't move. You know, fucking Edu and Kia life. have have signed another Portuguese speaking nobody. I can already picture Clive talking about your meat sweats and your Timberlands. Like I can see it. The point is like, like we should love our players. And you know what? Having good players can help in the dress. I mean, good guys can help in the dressing room and having guys that have the right qualities um, can help in the dressing room and, and caring a lot. But that that's the funny thing, right? But I mean, let's be clear. We're not talking about any players at Arsenal who are abject shit like you would be, Tim. We're talking about very, very good players and it's all happening on the margins. I hope I haven't gone into forcefully there, but all in all, um, I'm sure a really special occasion. And between that and having, I guess, met Ian Wright for lunch based on the photos I see of you on social media, is it out of the question that you're about to be signed by Arsenal? Because if this were United, <laughs> there's definitely a chance you'd be signed by United. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm holding out for, um, a bigger offer from United. But I, I'm not <laughs> sure they're ready to go as young um, and as tested as me just yet. <laughs> the, I mean, to be fair, the guys are looking at... Um, are older than you. So, I mean, that that's a good sign for all of us. Paul, you have something to say according to the raised hand emoji in our in our little uh, window. What, like I shouldn't have something of import no, to just, ask Tim? Like I said last time, it's axiomatic. It's a truism. It's understood. Paul has something to say. Please, go on. I, got, I, I implore I, you. I got a lot of feelings. Um, Tim, <laughs> I wanted to ask, did you have a moment when you were in front of the Portuguese lads where you had a chance to show your burst? I don't know. They were offering out drinks like 10 feet away. You didn't uh, like burst into a sprint. You just showed a little acceleration as you walked to show that, you know, you got to, did you kind of weave in between the boys so that you could show like you could change positions with them, you know, over to the left next minute he's on their right. And then he's like standing in the middle of them kind of thing. No, I, I lack it. I stood perfectly still. Um, and <laughs> waited five yards every- behind them. Yeah. Yeah. And they all ran towards me and, <laughs> and that works very nicely actually. Yeah, I do, um, as we switch real quick, do want to bring up Haroon, uh, a listener who got in touch, uh, a young man by my standards, <laughs> um, who fought a battle against cancer at a way too young age, and it sounds like has beaten that mother effer. And um, all I can say is that we love you, Haroon. We're glad you're um, fighting on, you know, hopefully out of the woods and, and just, you know, a part of this community I brought up at the top of the show. So we love you and, and thanks for being here and thanks for putting up the good fight. Amen, Haroon. Um, yep, yep. So um, I want to quickly talk about United because we have the time uh, and and I think we should take the opportunity. Paul, they may be signing Casemiro for 430 million euros, um, <laughs> but he's not interested. Uh, Gordon, <laughs> like they might be able to get Gordon. Oh, sorry, that's Chelsea. We'll get to them in a second. Um it's really hard to keep up with how screwed up United are. And I have to admit, when Woodward left, I was like, well, there go the good old days. But the good old days are now the even better new days. And I'm sort of curious if you have a thought on what's so special about United's circumstance that they really, really don't seem to be able to get their act together. I mean, when they lost Fergie and we lost Wenger, we saw what these cult of personality organizations go through trying to replace that. And I get it. But eventually as we have, you start to stumble onto a solution and, and move forward. United had a head start on that, but they are still, I think, behind even where we were at our low ebb. So why, hilariously, do you think they are such a mess? Um, they are the donkey with the two carrots equidistant from them. 
and mm. yet they starve to death. Um, I love co- that analogy. Can you use yeah. that? One of the carrots is the uh, aging head of Sir Alex Ferguson. And I'm not saying it was by craft and design, but uh, maybe sadly, but in the short term, it was probably the right thing for everybody involved. Arson didn't keep coming to every game, brooding over it, machinations in the background, fingers in the pie. It, yeah. he, he's like the patriarch who won't let his children grow up so that when the empire is handed over, they have no idea where to, how to run the empire. Like, um, And yet you have the commercial division of United, this other equal force that is basically saying all publicity is good publicity. As long as we have stars, it doesn't matter that we're shit, which was true for quite quite some time. I mean, they were just printing money over there and how they performed on the, you know, they get second, they get fourth, they get fifth. Didn't really matter. They kept getting the stars. But they're now such a basket place between so many different places. It's clear that what they're too big to... Uh, reinvent themselves as opposed to fail they're mm-hmm. they're just the right size to fail they're too big to <laughs> reinvent themselves they can't let go of like the good stuff that keeps coming the commercial aspect of it that side of the within their club i think uniquely we probably can't relate to this because our commercial division has been spectacularly uh, relatively underperforming and therefore has little clout when it comes to the meetings and who should be signed uh, that's probably how we got Cedric, the commercial department. Um, and by the way, to be fair, you can see from the All of or Nothings and no spoiler alerts here, Cedric's a lovely, lovely man, to your point earlier, Elliot. He's a lovely, <laughs> lovely man. I bet he really cares. Yeah. yeah. Well, he does. He's yeah. genuinely. like genuinely ge- Seriously. He's genuinely a lovely fellow. I, so, I am slightly off the point here, but like the, slightly. the new manager, let me condense it. The new manager comes in. It's clear what they should do. Don't worry about results for a while. No club can do that. Uh, the The fans need to let that go. They never will. And United is big enough that all of these camps can't be ignored. And it's kind of tearing them apart. And it's, beautifully balanced between all these factors so that Eric Ten Hag can't get the player he, players he wants. He's stuck with stars as well. The Ronaldo, like this this donkey has about three heads and about, what would that be? Four carrots, I think, if you were to put one either side of each head. Like, there's like, might need four heads, five carrots. Uh, I mm. don't know. If I keep going, we could be up to, yeah, I think I can get six carrots here, five heads. There's just too many competing forces, and they're all very, very large at United, from players, from the the level of support who demands success. You know, this is United. You're Gary Neville. They got, w- w- we wish we had loads of pundits out there. Maybe we don't want lots of pundits out there. It's There are too many forces at play here, a dynamic tension that is pulling this club apart before our very eyes. There we go. With your yeah. um, tortured analogies, I felt like I'd stumbled into like one of Manchester United's <laughs> transfer target meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we just buy six donkeys and three carrots? <laughs> I, I will tell you, they, they, they have bought six donkeys or more. Uh, we can, uh, over on the Patreon side, we can do the What is a Scott McTominay podcast another, another time. Scott took my comment and ran with it and posted his uh, radar, and it's still unclear what a, a Scott McTominay is. And, and so you have this situation. Situation with United, 
Tim, where like their cult of personality left, they haven't been able to cope with it. At Chelsea, you have a similar but slightly different thing. One cult of personality leaves the owner cult of personality and is replaced by a new cult of personality, someone who clearly wants to be known, to be seen, to be the doer. And, oh, it turns out, like, I do think that there is I think you're pronouncing cult wrong, by the way. Cult? Yeah. Cult of personality. How do you say it? It's one letter out, I think. Cunt. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Why, if I'd finished my cup of coffee five minutes earlier, I would have been all over that. You know what? Uh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, if you'd said something like you're one letter off there, so then I, I definitely would have gotten it. Um, so this C word of personality um, that we were discussing, like – it's interesting because I do think you get these these people, and you see this with a lot of billionaires and, and heads of companies, people who are extremely successful at something, and to be fair, probably quite bright, who start to believe that actually they're just better at everything than everyone, that they are smart enough to figure out how to do other things better than other people do them. And Todd Bowley is quite hilariously uh, demonstrating that uh, with all the efficiency of a five-headed donkey chasing carrots. Like, it, it's not going great from what I can see. Now, Now look, Chelsea are not where United are, but I'm curious about where you think their situation is. I mean, I, I get the sense that that is another cult of personality that is going to take time to, to change over from. Now, we do know that spending money helps, but as we've seen with United, it's not enough. Um, Maria Graniskaya, I think is her name. Like, she's gone. She, I think, was an important influence there. So do you think that with Chelsea, we could see a microcosm of what has happened at United, where a very big personality figure at the very top of what happens there is removed. Another one comes in, arguably just as big in personality, but not in experience and knowledge. And, I mean, with all fingers crossed, they go through a period of painful transition. Yeah, could well be. Like like you say, we've, we've all seen it, right? When that When that really big brick comes out, it, it takes time. At the very least, it takes time. And I'm aware that I've probably pronounced brick wrong before you start. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be the innuendo slash analogy show. That's it. We're just going to do innuendos and analogies all hour long. <laughs> Todd, Todd Bowl, like, Bowl is a brilliant name because he's really bowled in, hasn't he? And like, we've, we've heard all this stuff like, you know, he's invited all the other CEOs over for dinner and, uh, you know, round to his place. And then, you know, this stuff about giving out seven-year contracts and Kukureyas on a six-year contract and all of that. And, uh, you, you and know, the, like... Why do, why aren't player trades a thing? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> dinner with Barcelona and then they've been handing him his lunch for like weeks now. <laughs> it's it's like um, one of those blue sky meetings, you know, <laughs> one of those like... There, there are no ideas too ridiculous except everyone seeing them <laughs> played out in real time. It's like someone's got a webcam in like a Google creative meeting and, you know, look, what's said here is said here. Just like throw out ideas. <laughs> and and yeah, yeah and also the owner basically. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, to, Todd Bowley, it's it's very uh, Simpsons analogy alert. It's very um you know the episode with Arthur Fortune mm. where Mr. Burns like a, a very popular billionaire comes in and Mr. Burns gets very jealous and tries to figure out how c- he can be an even more popular billionaire. It's <laughs> 
it's it's a little bit like that and and yet like 100 by the way I'll, like, I'll stop you just real quick andrew yeah. needed you to come to his rescue on the last stars cast because he <laughs> he went with a, a simpsons reference and james didn't get it and uh they, they were both desperate for your your uh help and assistance in that moment so. it's, it's always good to have a role and um <laughs> and and yeah and and like again like look they like kukurea is a, a really good player like i think they've brought a really good player there and i think i think he fits roughly but nothing about what chelsea are doing strikes me as particularly strategic it is like it's it's kind of like um again like i i had my daughter's second birthday party like a couple of weeks ago and like she had sugar for the first time at this party we just like let her have a little slice of cake and (laughs) fuck me the first one's free (laughs) <laughs> it's, uh, Jesus Christ! It was like it was like it was like The Exorcist or something, <laughs> and and you know, and, and it's a little bit like that. Like there's a lot of sugar going on here. It's like, should we buy this guy? This guy, and he seems to be doing things like meeting with players, meeting with clubs, and then afterwards. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, Mister Tagel, do you actually want this player? Like, no, no, I don't want Ronaldo, <laughs> you idiot. Like, but there, but then, like I say, like like again. In in many many ways, this is just like a hyped up, uh, sped up version of what I think Chelsea have always done, which is just throw shit at the wall. Basically, like I, I hate the fact that anyone considers them anything other than a, just a high functioning basket case club. I hate all this. Oh, they sack all their managers and they're very successful. No. No, they should be a lot more successful and they're not because they've been bouncing from manager to manager. And look at all the shit they've done in the transfer market. They've given Werner and Lukaku away this summer. They bought them for like, what, 160 million or something? And they've just given them back to the clubs that they've got them from. Like in, in Lukaku's case in 12 months, Werner's case in, in two years. Go on Wikipedia and look at Chelsea's squad. I, I promise you there are at least six names on there that you'll go, shit, he's still there. Like, Bakayoko is still there. Rob, Robert Kennedy is still there. Like, Batshuayi is still there. Like, it's it's amazing that, like, people think that they're anything other than, like, a high-functioning basket case that just throws shit at the wall. But this this seems like, yeah, like the the kid that got sugar for the first time, and they're really throwing shit at the wall. Yeah, and I I think, you know, when Chelsea came in and started spending the way they did, no one was spending that way, right? And they had Mourinho in his pomp, <clears throat> who could play really crappy football that was effective, and they spent in a way no one else did, and they bullied their way through the league, fine. And then City came in and started spending the way they did, and United just spend a lot naturally and and Chelsea found it a little more difficult. But then something changed. Some clubs started getting smarter. City were spending, but they had a little bit more intelligence about what they were doing. Liverpool got quite intelligent, right? The league generally got harder and deeper, had more money, had more thoughtfulness about it. And I think the ability to bully the league with spending alone has gotten harder. Um, in part because as Premier League money has ballooned you just have a harder time moving on players that you want to move on from if it's not you know if if it's not working out and you want to continue to spend and where do you put them you know the teams can't even eat their wages and even Chelsea found there's a limit to where you can stash these players that you've overpaid not just in transfer fees but in wages and so I think we are reaching a moment where yes spending big will always be an advantage but if you do it without any 
sense of what is reasonable and smart. You will not be rewarded in the way you might have been several years ago. And so I do think we see a Premier League in flux, a Premier League where spending still matters, but where all the clubs have money. Maybe not City and Chelsea money, not United money, but a lot of money. You can't just swing the big money hammer as the analogies roll on, and crush the opposition. There has to be tactical awareness of what you're doing, of squad building, of all the principles that we talk about a lot. And the clubs that do it thrive, and the clubs that don't falter. And I do think that we could be looking at a moment where United obviously continue to be a dumpster fire, and and long may it continue. They still don't have their Cristiano Ronaldo situation remotely solved, by the way, which is hilarious. They want to pay $178 million pounds plus some Mars rocks for uh, Casemiro, um, which, you know, if, if they want to do that, I'm happy to do another age curve podcast. I'm always here for that. Um, you know, Chelsea want to give up good young players to Everton to get a less good young player uh, and give them a huge transfer fee. And like, if that's their plan, I fully but endorse it. That, so, yep. That, that's another thing about Chelsea as well, right? They they sold Guayhi to Palace and they got a good fee for him. Well mm-hmm. done. They sold Tamori to AC Milan, got a good fee for him. Well done. Sold Tammy Abraham to Roma, got a good fee for him. Well done. They would be better off with all three of those players at the moment because they want no defenders and no striker. Well, <laughs> they'd be better. They'd have been like, for whatever money they got for those players, the opportunity cost is bigger because they're having to go out and spend even bigger sums replacing them so it's just thick and to your united point um you know or sorry to your overall point about you know well coached teams look at who united have been beaten by this season brighton and brentford what do they have Mm -hmm. in common they're they're good teams that are that are better than the sum of their parts because they're very well coached by smart guys and they have a structure and they have like when brighton make a transfer you go yeah that's a brighton transfer when brentford get someone you go yeah that's a brentford transfer like they have a real identity and don't get me wrong united will almost certainly finish above both of those teams but in a one-off game they will hurt you and those one-off games they build up i I don't even know if they're certain to finish above them but i take your point and like this is this is the thing. I get it. Sometimes you have to cut a Willian loose or cut an Aubameyang loose. They're in their 30s. They're overpaid, and there's not much you can do with it. But you look at Chelsea. They have no use for Callum Hudson-Odoi. They have no use for Christian Pulisic. I saw one rumor where they're like, they're going to pay Everton for Anthony Gordon, who's a bright young 21-year-old, and also give them Christian Pulisic, who's 23. And, and this is the thing, right? I mean, if you can't use a good 23-year-old, you're going to send him out and bring in potentially a less good 21-year-old? And forgetting whatever you think of the players, like those are the kinds of things that don't make any sense. And by the way, I'd have a bit of uh, Hudson Adoy, I think maybe at Arsenal, if if you know if they're just chucking players out the window. I mean, and, and I think your point is spot on, Tim. So the, the Premier League does look in flux, and I I think it just reiterates the point that there's there's something there for us if we get this project right. That Chelsea may be ready to abdicate the position they've held for a little while. United are not coming back in anytime soon to claim it. That's not to say they can't. Look, with the amount they spend, if they ever get their act together, their turnaround time can be pretty quick. I mean, hell, look at our turnaround time when we spent intelligently. One season, we went from kind of looking like a calamity to a team fully on the rise. So, but the point is right now, United aren't there. Spurs may be at the end of a cycle in a way because Harry Kane and, and Youngman's son are not going to be good forever. Conte's not going to stay forever. Um, Chelsea, as I said, maybe in decline. You have City, you have Liverpool. 
maybe Liverpool, with as hard as they've been pushed for as long as they have under Klopp's system. You see these cycles with Liverpool, right? Like a 90-something point season. Then a season where their players just break down and they, they, they don't compete. And then a 90-something point season, they break down and maybe we get a breakdown season here. And suddenly, there's Arsenal. On the rise, with young players coming into their best. And I think what it gives us is an opportunity. And we're going to get to that opportunity in a moment because I, I do... I do want to focus the majority of the back half of this podcast on, on what's there for us if we really attack it in the market, on the pitch, and so on. So we'll get to that. I, I, I do just want to quickly um, reference the, the documentary for a second, though, Paul. And one of the things that struck me that I think is interesting is it, the conversations we have about football and the way people react to them, right? You make a joke about a player on Twitter and people are like, oh, you, you hate that player. You have an agenda. Or you 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 say like, this player needs to do this. And like, oh, I think you, you must know more than the coach. You must like, and we're, we're sometimes so uncharitable to each other in terms of our opinions. And then I watch the documentary and I'm like, you know what? They give each other the same kind of jokes and have the same kind of analysis. It turns out that football at some levels is quite a simple game. And the themes and the ideas of them are actually quite easy to see. So, like, there's one episode, and this isn't spoilers because it goes back a bit, where they're sitting down with Lacazette in a one-on-one session, and they're basically like, you can't be so focused on the buildup, right? You need more movement. You need to get into the box because if you get into the box, we know you'll score goals. Um, they're sitting with Eddie and Kenny, right? And they're like, you can't just stand like this. You need to be ready to, to move. When we're in a crossing position, I want to see you moving in the box. Uh, we're almost talking a, about body language with him in the box, right? To be yeah. awake, to be alert. Not Nothing great and tactical. It's like, be ready. Look just, like yeah, you're just, ready. Just be, yeah, exactly. And and then like there's a, a, a section where Mikel Arteta in front of the whole team makes fun of Shaka about red cards. You do that on Twitter, you're getting ratioed. Well, actually, he's only had these many red cards. Why are you bringing it up? Like, oh, he's not refereed the same. Like, I get it. But there's the manager making the joke in front of the team and they're all having a laugh. And it just makes me realize, Paul, that like, no, we don't know better than the manager. There are tactical insights the documentary's not bringing up. But actually, sometimes some of the things we see, I don't mean we podcasters, I mean all of us, just see on the pitch or the jokes that we make about the players are the same kind of discussions and jokes and conversations that they're having within the team. And that's actually great because it means, you know, we all sort of see the game through not always the same lens, but a similar lens. And maybe we should be more charitable with each other in realizing it's not the end of the world to reach, to have some of these points of analysis or some of these jokes, because the same kind of things are happening behind the scenes. Yeah. Look, I don't want to go all Clivey on you, but there's a whole well, context. Need it. This pot yeah. needs it. <laughs> <laughs> look, Elliot, I, I'm going to tell you how midfield works in a moment. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that was my Clive voice. Oh, oh okay, okay. Yes, please, Clive. Go on. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, out of the mouths of babes and little children, like there's a simplicity sometimes to what's going on that anybody can see and anybody should see. So, like, there are truths you can know without being a football expert uh, as long as one is self-aware and as long as we're all – like, the problem with football – uh, analysis among us bozos. No offense meant, Elliot. Um, offense I, taken. I, I include me in that and the rest <laughs> okay. of Twitter. Yeah. Is just sometimes we lose our self-awareness. You can talk about all that stuff and and it's it can be a worthwhile and valid conversation. If everybody remembers they're not actually the director of football, they've not managed a, coach, a team, they've not coached a team, they've not been in the cauldron of the European final. Like... 
once everybody has that awareness and keeps that, which we're very bad at on Twitter, we talk like we're experts. It's not that we shouldn't have these conversations. It's just we need to keep that little bit of self-awareness that we don't know what the fuck we're talking about. But that doesn't mean that it isn't as plain as the nose on your face what the issue is here at United or Chelsea or what City are doing well or aren't doing well. Like we can truths should be apparent they should like if they don't become clear to the rest of the world there there's probably not a truth there um what's amazing about the documentary to me and again no spoiler alerts <clears throat> is how simple so many things of the football world are um now there's a Agreed. whole bunch of stuff mm-hmm. they don't show us yep but in certain aspects of it are very very simple very very straightforward i'm amazed how quiet the dressing room is like, uh, I would have thought there'd be way more shouting, way more, like, there's, there'll be a lot of things they didn't show us along the way. But, like, <clears throat> most of the dressing room, like, those are the real bits, right? They may not have shown us everything, but that's real. They At that point, they've forgotten there are cameras. Um, you come in at halftime, you come in at full time. We win. If we win, everybody's cheering. If we're losing, it's deadly quiet. When you lose, you kind of lose on your own. When you win, you win together. And you see that in that dressing room. Um, I, I delighted it. Like, I thought the first week of episodes was goodish. The second was very good. The third was great. I know we lost and and it was terrible. And, but it was feckin' brilliant, Elliot. Feckin' brilliant. I thought it was a great seven-season show, uh, seven-episode seven show, Paul. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, if you scroll down, there's another no, one there. I, no, don't know what you mean. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, it really does join the, the dots and what they should, like, there are parts of it that are very, very real, parts of it that like they invite you in and you they know you're there um and i think there are things you can take from it and again the the awareness that what you're looking at and what the context is but yeah you could you sh- can and should argue the shit about football argue the toss about united chelsea you don't have to be an exp- expert these things become clear to you at a certain level there are things you, you if you have enough awareness then one should realize there are things we just don't know. But there's plenty to talk about and argue with a probability of whatever that maybe there's something you don't know. Yeah. As a final point on this, Tim, there's a few things that struck me. Like, first of all, the players themselves talk a lot about mentality. Shaka talks about mentality a lot in this episode. Mentality comes up a lot. The manager references energy, mentality, all those things. Now, part of that is because we're just not seeing all the tactical sessions. Like, we get one l- nice little moment where he's showing in Kedia sort of a technical aspect of the game with three touches and then turning and going. Like there's there's a little of that, but not a ton of that. But the funny thing is, as much as they talk about mentality, the thing that I really track as I watch this is, wow, when the good players were available, we're winning. And when they're not available, we're losing. And ultimately, you can talk all the tactics in the world and you can talk all the mentality in the world. It's easier to win with the better players and it's harder to win with the less good players. And when you look at that first couple of episodes and you're like, we were putting out who? Wow, I forgot that. And then you look at these episodes where you're looking at like Palace, Brighton, Southampton, and you're like, Tierney gone, Tomiyasu gone, uh, Ben White gone for a period. Laka, I mean, Ob- Oba gone, obviously. Thomas Party gone. And it's like, 
Yeah. It's your mentality can be whatever All you want. All in the and, defense of back line. Yeah. And, and, you know, the funny thing is like, I actually, I think it's, I loved what Arteta did because when they turn it around and they win against Chelsea and United, who does he praise? El Nenny holding, right? He, he praises the, Enkedia. He praises the players who had to be patient and had to be professional and had to come in and do the job of their, let's say it, better players that weren't available because he understands that they had to go through the suffering of not being in the team. And there is some of that interview where they say like, you know, I mean, Samby, there's a really sort of interesting moment there. They're sitting around the table and Samby's like brooding essentially. And they're they're like they're making fun of him. I think it's Enkedia making fun of him. Sort of like, and you know, Smith you think Rowe, you're yeah. the only player not playing, bro? You know? And he's like, well, I was happy before I was playing. These guys suffer when they don't play. Rob Holding makes a joke about, I'm always ready when I get called on even when I'm not playing. I'm the ultimate team player. You'd want 11 of me, wouldn't you? You know, like they 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 get it. They, they, they want to be on the pitch. They don't want to be a squad player. And so it is really an interesting dynamic because you win when you have your better players, but you can't win if you can't call on these players. And I think... That's just a really interesting thing to see in these last few episodes is how the shape of the team had changed at the tail end of the season, how that derailed us, and how Arteta had to try to lift these other players who were being called on in the critical moment of the season. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, you, you're quite right, <clears throat> excuse me, to reference all of that, like quality is quality, right? Um, th- there, were s- there were some things um, just generally, because I'm aware I haven't really spoken about the show um, on the podcast yet, but some things um, that I've taken from it, you know, to your point about mentality and things like that. I mean, first of all, that doesn't actually surprise me because footballers do talk about it all the time. Uh, and I don't think they're just being guarded about tactics, to be honest. There might be an element of that. I think managers are being guarded about tactics when they talk about that stuff. But I do think it's important because ultimately that's why they're professionals in the first place. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of people out there who have the talent to be professional footballers, probably the talent to be Premier League footballers, some, not loads of those, but some. But what really separates these really good footballers out is the mental side. That, like, I think it's as simple as that. I think there's so many fine margins uh, when you're talking about um, you know, like really, really gifted, talented footballers and mentality basically makes pretty much all of that margin up there might be other things like you know it's like getting into a band or something that gets signed maybe you just got seen by the right person at the right time and it all took off Uh, and there might be someone else out there who mentally is fine but just didn't get seen by the scout when they were having the game of their life or something like that Um, but one of the things I think that kind of came across to me and, and I really I'm really curious i suspect the answer is going to be no i'm really curious as to whether arteta will watch this or has been watching this or has seen any of it um i don't know if he was at the premiere or anything like that but i wonder if it might be a really valuable exercise for him to do so i'm not saying this like to kill the guy or anything but i do wonder if there are some things he might look at like i'm sure he evaluates his own performance and other people in the club evaluate his performance but i wonder like when um when they went to anfield like earlier in the season in november and he was talking so much about like that one time he had a terrible game there and like i was and again with the, all the caveats that it's all edited and this is just my opinion so maybe it's rubbish but i was thinking you're massively over indexing this man. You're just you're putting that trauma onto your players, 
and mm-hmm. you're making this a big thing about like I've been to Anfield many times, right? And look, being there as a fan and being there as a player, I'm sure they're very different things. Bullshit, total myth, total myth. All this, like, you'll never walk alone. Plays before the game starts. You don't have like I'm. I'm not against like <laughs> he was the, preparing them for the warm up, Tim. <laughs> uh, it, 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 exactly, exactly. Like I'm not against trying shit like that. That's fine. Like I'm not. I'm not saying it's oh, it's ridiculous. But like, it's like they don't sing that during the actual game. And even if they do, who? It's not actually a very intimidating song either. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's, it's, it's actually, not like Pantera or something. It's, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I've got a mate of mine. Like we always talk about, what what music should Arsenal come out to? And uh, and I got a mate who insists it should be the song "Invaders Must Die" by the Prodigy, which which is a brilliant choice because if you know, get the strobes going and yeah, yeah, let's have some <laughs> of that. But yeah, like. And the thing is, a year before that, that the game Arteta's referencing, I'm certain, is when we lost 5-1 in 2014. He actually scored in that game. He scored a penalty. But the year before that, we went to Anfield and we beat them 2-0 and he was brilliant. And I was just like, again, maybe he did and the cameras just didn't show it, but or the editing didn't show it. But it's like, but why aren't you... T- if, you're, if you're insisting on bringing your experience at this ground with the players. And by the way, the players you played against for Liverpool, not one of them is still at the club. The manager is different, like mm-hmm. different shit. Like, why aren't you talking about the time that you played brilliantly and we won 2-0 and what you did that day? And, and you know, so, so there, yeah, there are, there are some things where, and look, we saw, I haven't seen the last two episodes yet, but we saw like with the Spurs game, right? That, that was an emotional, um, the tactics that night were were driven by emotion, I think. I think it was driven by, we're going to get into them, we're going to show them and all of that. And actually, what they really should have done is gone, Tottenham are a really good counter-attacking team. We're missing like all of our defenders. Let's just, at least for the first 20 minutes, let's not lose this game in the first 20 minutes. And if we draw it, it's fine. But I, th- I think they really went like right over the top men. And it was a bit of a silly thing to do. And I do wonder if he'll just reflect on that and say, hmm, okay, yep. I'm still a young manager. Maybe my emotion got the better of me on that occasion. It, and maybe it's next actually time interesting, Tim. You haven't got to it yet, and I think you'll find it interesting. But he does – it's one of the few areas they have a tactical section in it, and he ex- it doesn't really change what you said. He does explain what they were trying to do, um, and uh, it was all about stopping Kane. Yeah, and, and look – it, it just comes it, the, the funny thing about the whole mentality thing and all that is I think one of the reasons like players talk about it a lot is because the talent part isn't something you can talk about it, it, right like what yeah, are you supposed to say a, it's I know fixed. I kicked I know I kicked the ball good you know <laughs> like yeah. but, but then you listen to like a Jamie Carragher talk about a Thierry Henry and it's not mentality it's like the guy was better he was faster he could dribble he could pass he could shoot right when you hear p- players talk about other players, who they admire. They talk about their talent. When they talk about themselves or their teammates, they often talk about mentality because in a way you take the talent stuff for granted. Like, you know, if someone came to me and said like, oh, you know, how do you do a podcast? First of all, I'd be like, talk to Andrew. But like, I wouldn't be like, well, you should have a talk good conversation you know, like, you know, like, like, I, you know, I might say, oh, well, here's a, here's a, you know, a way I think about it. The point is there's certain fixed points 
in the in the sky when it comes to football. And one of them is your talent level. And it goes back to my point about if, if Arsenal signed Tim, none of the mentality stuff would matter because the talent level wouldn't be sufficient, Paul. Yeah, look, I, I think it's one of those things we get caught up in our shorts worrying about. Um, whether you think it's 50% mentality and 50% talent, or you even think it's 80% talent or 90% talent, as you've just said, talent's fixed. So the difference, the thing you can impact, if you've been playing terribly as a team, you can't say, let's be more talented in the next game. You're working with the 10 or 20%, which, by the way, is 10 or 20% and the difference between you and the other team, because, again, you got fixed ta- fixed talent. The only way you can make it up is mentality, it's uh, being on the same page, being aligned, having that group mind. Um, and the thing about mentality is it's not individual. This yeah. is why you can't just say to yourself, oh, team, let's go and put that behind us and move on because you're looking at them, they're looking at you. You don't even know what this transcendent thing that goes above your group is, that the group is together and on it. One guy on it d- uh, makes things worse because he's at a step with the other 10 who aren't on it. Like you're better off all sitting back or all going forward, but you can't like, that's the whole thing about it. And it changes throughout a game games through change throughout a season. It's a very mysterious thing. And not only do players always talk about it, managers talk about it all the time. Are, like they'll talk about talent But the thing that changes from game to game, point to point, moment to moment in a game, the players are fixed. You can do a bit of a tactical tweak. You can bring on a guy as a sub. You're stuck with this group thing of this complex system of systems, which is a team, and it's fascinating. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and... and, Yep. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. That it? Okay, no, I I agree. And, like, the other thing that we should remember is... Even the best at any of this stuff get things wrong and will second-guess themselves and wonder if they should have done things differently. The thing that's really hard in football that makes it you know, only for the elite, not just talent-wise, but mentality-wise, is it's ruthless in that at the end of the day, you've won or you've lost or you've drawn. But you know, in our daily life, we have some successes and some failures, but they're very rarely as cleanly evaluated from week to week or you know, every three days as football is. And so I guarantee you there are times Arteta was probably thinking, could I have brought Aubameyang back in and gotten two more goals and made champions? I guarantee you he thought that. I'm sure there are times when he's saying, when I gave them that whole funeral speech thing after the losing streak, like, should I have lifted them instead? Could that have gotten us the win at Southampton? You know, should I have gone back to Lacazette? Did I show too much trust in Nketi? Like, I, I promise you, these players and these managers have the same questions about the decisions that we raise when we discuss these things because they are ruthlessly evaluated. And, and unfortunately, that also means bad process can get rewarded, right? So when you win, you probably think I did everything right, which isn't true. And when you lose, you probably think I did something wrong, which may not be true, right? We talked about that when he benched Aubameyang for the North London Derby and we won it, right? That means you, did, you got it right. That's how football works. But that is that is an incredible crucible to be forged in. And I, I think that we see Arteta coming into a comfort zone with that. And, and we get that from the documentary. It's certainly, more than anything, what the documentary has done is it's really gotten me very hyped up for this season, too. It makes me want them to do one for this season because I feel, 
I feel as I'm watching the football and as I'm experiencing the season, I'm thinking back to things I saw in the documentary that maybe have me feeling a little bit more connected to some of the players and, and the manager. And that that's a cool phenomenon. So I also want to mention that when we are discussing talent, there is only one thing we discuss, and that is indeed the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. They've got Instant Match. We've talked about it. They've got assessments. They've got virtual interviews. We've talked about it. All great tools. With those tools, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a post. Now, assessments, like, solves a major problem I've always thought about online hiring, which is I'm just a number that, you know, the company and I don't have any way to really connect beyond hopefully my resume gets passed an algorithm and gets picked. And what are the odds of that? With assessments, you can select for the skills that matter to you most. There's over a hundred hard and soft skills. There's 135 assessment tests from cooking to coding. So it gives the candidate a chance to stand out. It gives the company the chance to have a better likelihood of getting what they need, which means they're eight times more likely to consistently actually, you know, attend the job and and be part of the team. And that's what everybody wants. It's what the hiring partner wants, what the the candidate wants. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements, right? If that were the case in the transfer market, Manchester United would never have to pay a transfer fee. So there you go. Indeed is unbelievably powerful hiring partner delivering four times more hires than every other job site combined according to Talent Nest. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms of supply, you need to hire, you need Indeed. Paul, is that enough of that? Indeed. Nailed it. Okay. Tim, you never go full whiskers. You never, never, never go full whiskers, but let's go full whiskers. I think this season is there to be really, really special. I think top four is absolutely there and we should be going for it. I think we should, look, two games into the season, you should always think you can win the title if you've won your first two games. Do I think we can win the title? Yes, I 100,000% think we can win the title. But, But my point isn't so much winning the title. I think we can have a really special, great season. Push for the Europa League, push towards the top of the league, really state our case that we are the team that is coming next, that we are the team that can emulate, you know, like what a Liverpool did, build intelligently behind a talented manager and move up. And that means we should think clear eyed right now as we look ahead to, to Bournemouth at the weekend, what could be a really fun weekend of football, about where the potential failure points are where let's go full whiskers right now what are the areas that you say i'm concerned about this that maybe while there's still time in the window or still time early in the season we should be thinking about addressing so that this very little seed of a sensational special season can blossom into a a beautiful flower of the season we think we could have yeah, I, I think um, the main thing, to be honest, is there's there's a couple of little adjustments we've made um, early this season, uh, mainly based around the new signings. So there are a relationship between Z- uh, Zinchenko and Xhaka on the left, and all of a sudden our left side is, is doing stuff, doing bits, as the kids say. Um, and you've got Zinchenko and Xhaka swapping on that left side, so Martinelli can stay nice and central and, and all of that. And, you know, Xhaka making third man runs into the area. And and it's all working really well because it's not stuff we've done before. Like, you can't scout 
what a team does with two completely new players when they haven't played for you before. So I guess my um, I, I wouldn't I'm not sure I'd call it a concern because it's just a totally natural thing that happens. Is just you know Bournemouth, for example, are going to be prepared for what because they've seen two games now. They've seen all of this and they're going to be preparing a game plan to stop it basically. And as we go through the season, that will happen more and more. So I guess. You know, if you're one of the coaching staff, you're either thinking, how do we do this so well that it doesn't matter? Or how do we find other solutions when that happens? Now, to be fair, this happened on Arsenal's right side last season, basically. Once Odegaard came in, once Tommy Asu came in, we were doing new stuff on the right. And it was like, oh, here we go. The right side looks really good. And then, you know, maybe after a few months, that. I don't think it completely, I don't think, I wouldn't call it getting nullified or anything, but maybe one of those pieces came out in Tommy Asu and it didn't function quite as well and teams were more onto it, basically. So it, it that's, um, and I don't know if there's a way of, um, well, well, I mean, obviously there's just keep buying new players, <laughs> basically. And then you've always got a new player to put in the starting lineup and then other people can't, you know, that's what we should do, actually. We should buy 19 new players and but not but start them each in like consecutive games basically so that every time we've got a debutant in the starting eleven and therefore teams will never work out what we're doing. Um, but but in all so, seriousness, it's, Tim, it's, can, yeah. can I say why I think this year is different on that? Because I think that's, sure. that's spot on. Uh, Gabriel Jesus. Now I know you weren't a big Gabriel Jesus guy, but. <laughs> Do remember, I was a skeptic, yeah. Yeah, uh, do remember I'm the man who said he was the most transformational signing of the last decade and a half, about two weeks ago. Um, Look, he doesn't even play in a position, right? He plays in three positions. And that's what I think our antidote to, oh, well, they know how we're going to play. And he dribbles from outside of the box and he makes his, his own... Uh, opportunities and chances and as long as he's fit and firing um, it's not all about him because that means Martinelli's through the middle Uh, we haven't even bothered moving Saka around and he can play five different positions in the front line I just think we have so much variation suddenly like last year you knew what positions these guys were going to be in not just from game to game uh, within game and like Arteta I've talked about this a couple of times. There was a video on the on the dot com where he's talking with uh, I think it's Iderval, and they're uh, they've just got their new contracts and they're ch- walking around the pitch chatting. And Arteta's going on and on about how he wants to be unpredictable for the other side and not just yep. with the lineup. Like literally before the game starts, he's having a look at how he thinks they're setting up from from practicing on the pitch beforehand. Uh, what he's like, he has a plan A and a plan B ready to go for starting time. And now he's got all sorts of options. Like Jesus, you see him in clips and he's like standing on the right touchline. And you're like, hang on. You don't even realize it. You play back a really good movement and you're like, you play back and you're like, oh, Je- Jesus was on the right touchline for that one. Martinelli was in the middle. This guy was there. That guy was there. And then within the play, they're all moving. You know, Martinelli dropping into the midfield, running up through the middle, uh, getting on the end of the shot and bang it in, banging it in from just outside the box in this this game. Like just the, the, 
the flexibility, variability Zinchenko brings you. Um, I just think we have so many more moving parts that I hope the ability to say, oh, that's how they're going to play against us for Bournemouth. They're like, uh, you know, is a centre-back going to follow Gabriel Jesus around the pitch to nullify him like they can with Lacazette always going to drop 10 yards and I'll go with him or Mm. I won't go with him or this situation. Like, what do you do with Jesus or Martinelli? You're like kind of fucked if if your job is to man-to-man mark them. You're going to be on the left wing and then the right wing. Yeah, and even with Zinchenko, like, uh, like, because on one hand up front as well, if it's not Jesus, it's Eddie who does very, very similar things, and yeah. and I think that that's a good thing for the forward line. But at left back, if you start working out Zinchenko, Tin is very different, and yeah. that can be a good thing and a bad thing. But if you're bringing someone on, or if Zinchenko doesn't work for a particular game then you throw Tierney at them. It's, it's interesting you um, you referenced uh, Arteta chatting with Jonas Eideval there because something Jonas said to me several times last season was that basically the aim of any coach is that your team understands your style so well they can do it in their sleep. But for your opponents, it's like the first ever time they're playing against it. He said like that's yeah. the the virtuous circle that any coach tries to achieve. So, I mean, he was talking about like Barcelona Femini, for example, where he was just like, he spoke about this after Arsenal played them. And he was like, the problem is we don't play teams who do what they do because they're the only team that does what they do. And he said, that's the point you want to get to where your players understand something so well, but the opponents don't because they yeah. don't play against it every week and because of that fluidity. So I, I do think I do think you've got a point there, Paul. Ob- obviously, right? The more obvious, I, I realise we've turned your whiskers section, uh, Elliot, into here's why we're brilliant. Um, yeah, the only person but- who really goes whiskers effectively on this podcast <laughs> is me. So I don't worry, leave but, it to me. I'll get there. <laughs> but, but but obviously, we've got some pinch points, right? Just like yeah. any other team. Like, what the hell do we do if Saka gets injured? I imagine we switch Martinelli to the right and Smith right. Or you know, at the moment, like, what the hell do we do if we lose Thomas Party? You know, yeah. that, that, I think the real course, issue is depth are. again. It doesn't feel yeah. like it should be depth this season because we've signed some more players and we've added depth. But like. Th- that's the only thing that gives me concerns, depth. I yeah. mean, you can go around the pitch and say three, four positions where, like, if they're out for a while or there's a problem, then, you know, we don't have that much depth at three or four positions. Yeah, yeah. indeed. But but I'll say uh, save that for after the ad break, please. Um, I, the, the, the interesting thing is I thought – Thomas party was a clear area where we had some exposure and we need to think about, but what I think is interesting, the system has changed. He, as well as we played through the first two games, he has not looked nearly as influential. I said at the back end of last year, he was a single point of failure. He dropped out and we failed quite clearly. And we saw, especially against like a Newcastle, how we couldn't cope with building back to front in the first two games. Zinchenko's had more passes than him. Shaq has had more passes than him against Palace, I believe it was, Odegaard had more passes than him. The defenders had more passes than him, but that center backs tend to have a lot of passes because there's just a lot of recycling the ball for every team. But we're building in wide triangles and wide pods and pressing more to win the ball back now too. And and so I don't think, because look, do, I don't think he is a defensive shield. He is not that kind of player. What makes him special is what he does on the ball. I've never thought, 
it's his physicality and his defensive work that that's his strength. It's actually his elusiveness and his ball progression. The off the ball stuff I think an El Nenny can do actually. It's the on the ball stuff that I don't think El Nenny can do. And if we're not as reliant on him on the ball, then I'm a little less worried about what we lose if we have to have someone else come in there. It's certainly an area where we could strengthen, but like, do I think Shaka could do what he's doing right now if we had Vieira in the left eight or Smith Rowe in the left eight? I mean, I think we, he could do it a lot better in this iteration of how we're playing than the iteration last season. So uh, I, I, I look at it more like if Nicola Pepe goes and there's still talk that he might go, we clearly look short of a first-team player in the front three. And it means you get into games like the League Cup and Europa League, and a Saka is starting those games, or a Martinelli is starting those games, or a Jesus is starting those games. Because really, after that, it's Smith-Rowe, it's Nketiah, and it's maybe Fabio Vieira. And Unless you think Marquinhos, Marquinhos is in the yeah. first. T- yeah, and so, I mean, it, then you really look short, and, and really look short, like... In terms of, because you can't be in a situation where you're like, my backup left eight is Smith-Rowe. My backup right wing is Smith-Rowe. My backup left wing is smith You know, that that's not, that doesn't work that way. Um, Paul, you wanted to come in on, I think, the midfield part of this. Yeah. Um, like, I don't know. I, I, I have an open mind on this one, but I don't know that we have the Thomas Party thing right. I think we ask him to do two different types of DM job in a game. And he's definitely a muscular midfield shield, even if he's not the absolute destroyer. And he plays very, very progressive passes or attempts to. I'm not saying deep into, mm-hmm. well, he, he even did a couple of those in, against Leicester, balls over the top or deep. Yep. But it's it's a unicorn position he's playing at the moment. Now, we might think he's not in great form and he's not seeing that much of the ball. But look how the distances from him to e- and everybody else are massive. Like you put El Neni or Jack in that position, you got to drop a couple of players much closer to him uh, to give him support. You got to pull in Chaka. You got to Odegaard may have to drop deeper. Um, he may not be in brilliant form. Can, can I, I count? Can I counter that with one thing though? Because this wasn't about his form for me. This is about style. Like, yeah, but at, towards but, the end of last season, when you have a when you have a Nuno Tavares on one side of him and a Cedric on the other side of him in a sort of two three mm-hmm. five type buildup, that's very different than when you have a Zinchenko and a Ben White on either side of him and their ability to get close. So if that player is El Neni and he's got Cedric and Nuno next to him, he's still tasked with a lot of work to being able to play out, get out, do anything. When the players next to him are Zinchenko and White. And then you have a passer like Saliba behind you as well. Like you have a lot more capability to just give a safe pass and still be able to get out and and progress the ball. I just think that applies much more to Mo Elneny. Um, it gives him a lot more capabilities and it it pro- mm. it provides us with an option. But look how we play when parties on the field. Like you'll see Zinchenko and uh, White, and, and like there's this hub of a kind of a spoked wheel around Tom's yeah. party yeah, and the distance, distances are massive because he can handle it and it gets us spread out into positions that you're not going to do with El Neni. If it's El Neni, people pull in closer and yeah, we'll make it work and stuff. It's a good fallback. But I think we underestimate just how 
Thomas Party allows us to expand as a team into the spaces further up and around. I'm amazed at the distances we allow between Thomas Party and anybody else around him. I think I would have just said last season, if you showed me a game where three play, three non-defender players, three non-center backs, right? So five total players <clears throat> had more passes than Thomas Party. I sure. would have said that's a game where we did not play well. And in this case, it's a game that we dominated and won convincingly. And but so I think, I think he's part of what is, I think it's the classic. He's actually part of why we can play without him. Because so you're saying I'm, make, I'm making a correlation and causation mistake, in other words. is that he, He's that, allowing us yeah, to play everywhere else because yes. he's got the middle. Let's be clear. Mostly. We don't, we don't have a guy that I want playing 30 games in that position if it came down to it. But I would also say, like, as much as I love Nketiah and with the best will in the world, we don't have a guy I want starting 30 games up, you know, at center forward over Gabriel Jesus. Like, I, I think... What I'm what I'm seeing, and this is the reason I'm not going full whiskers, and now I'm not doing whiskers, which sucks, is that we've created a system that has fewer dependencies that I look at and I say, well, without that piece, we're effed, right? In the way that I felt last season, right? Without Kieran Tierney, we were kind of after. Without Tomiyasu, we were, or without Thomas Party, and now like Zinchenko might be better, Ben White might be as good, right? And and I'm not remotely saying that. Elneny is as good or or Shaka would work as well there but that the yeah. the collection of technical quality around him it, it at least gives us a bit of protection there's no question that that adding another piece to the midfield makes us stronger i've always said this though tim it is a lot harder than it sounds to say let's go buy a guy who is a starter level guy elite quality player who also is totally fine if the starter is fit playing five games all season, right? Like, like you know, when Liverpool went and got Thiago, a lot of people are like, what do they need Thiago for? But Thiago came and he started, displaced a player, and he became the guy, period. He started all the games. Um, so if you want to go get a guy that that's, you know, really, really good, then maybe it is a party replacement. But I think it is very hard to buy someone who is a party um, emergency you know, break glass in case of emergency option. And, and that is true at, at many positions. But I think much more true in midfield because I think the attack <clears throat> rotates around more. I think attackers are more commonly subs, right? Like, oh, I'll I'll take off my right winger who's starting to fade and bring on my other really good right winger. That's the thing that happens. I don't think you want to take out your your sort of controlling central midfield player if you can leave him on. Um, and then you start to say, well, then can Sambi do it? Can El, you know where are they on many minutes? And 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 then you do start to say, like, okay. What am I actually targeting? Like, I think if we go out and we get a really good forward, there's going to be plenty of minutes for everybody because front threes move around and there's Europa and there's cups and there's substitutions. And that's a position that gets subbed a lot for effectiveness. We've already seen in the first two games, you know, the front three, Saka came off in a game, Jesus came off in a game. Um, And like, that's going to keep happening. So, I still regard adding another attacker, especially if Pepe goes, as probably the priority. And also just because I am allergic to the idea that we don't score enough goals to to get where we need to go. And I just think the way I see us playing right now has me slightly less concerned about our dependency on that single central midfielder. But but do you see it differently? What is the what is the priority and how do you, how do you solve it, I guess? Because that that second piece, it's easy to say we need a midfielder. I think it's very hard to say who and what quality that player should be and how they would actually get on the pitch. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because we've been thinking about the left eight, right? But but so far, Jacques has been playing that pretty well. 
Um, but again, like with the caveat that people are going to get wiser to it now. Like I, I do think, generally speaking, El Nenny is basically a poor man's Thomas Party, which is kind of what you get with a backup, right? <laughs> like I've been, I, I went back and rewatched the first two games again um, yesterday, uh, or sorry, the first half of the the first two games, and I look at what Party does. And, and it is kind of very El Nenny. He receives, turns, distributes, and then when the ball breaks loose, he's like onto the press. And El Nenny does all that stuff. He he does all of that stuff. He just doesn't do it as well, which, yeah, like, duh, that's what happens with your backups, essentially. And uh, and, and actually, El Nenny's in a weird spot because he's possibly... The other good thing we've built in our team are like, uh, you know, the, the, the layers beneath like the absolute first 11 are guys who can play slightly different roles. So Fabio Vieira... Saka, Erdegaard, Jacker, basically back up for all three of those. Smith Rowe, back up for left, right, and number 10 as well. Like Ben White is your backup right back. So Saliba is effectively like a backup for two positions, you know? So we're like keeping those players involved. El Nenny is, I mean, with like Cedric has moved down the pecking order now. El Nenny's like the only one where it's like you only play if this one guy is out, basically. Um, and and so yeah, I I think I agree with you. I I think what would make more difference to Arsenal's season is, is another attacker, um, basically. Is and I do think I've got I've just got a bit of a hunch it might happen. Um, it might be like a deadline day thing or something. It, like all of the intel we have, right, is basically they're like right, okay, we're broadly happy with the squad, but if we can. Sweep the broom sufficiently. We'll do one more thing. That's basically the noise. That's the noise we've got from like Art. I'm not even talking about like David Ornstein here. I'm talking about like Arteta. He's effectively said that it's like if we yeah. can do one more, we will. But it's dependent on getting guys out the door, and some of those might go out at 11:59 on deadline day. So it it will be dependent on that. But a hundred percent, I think that that's the position the club will look at, and I think really what they'll be thinking about is Pepe out, someone else in, and they're probably just going to back themselves to like shift Bellerin and, and, and whoever else. Yeah. Paul. Yeah. I, I think that's spot on. I think it's an attacker. We need more than anything cover for Saka rotation options. You know, we're switching Martinelli to the right-hand side to get Saka off the pitch. Uh, and keeping ja- Gabriel Jesus on at times when we should be getting them off. Now, it's the first couple of games, so you want to bed in your patterns. I'm fine with that. We use less subs than anybody else uh, for shorter periods of time. I think we're like uh, bottom of the league for swapping players out, uh, plus or minus one or two places. I think nine minutes per sub <clears throat> is our average, which is way below. Uh, I think City use more players for longer in terms of their subbing. So we have a ways to go. It's early days. Um, and I do agree with you guys on on the order priorities. Zinchenko is a huge mitigation for El Nenny. And I'm very comfortable with the idea that the answer, if we don't have party, is to lean into Zinchenko a little bit more to get Chaka back up so we have our two eights up the pitch. Weird conversation to be having. I always thought it would be Chaka covering for Zinchenko getting forward, and we've seen some of that, but maybe we'll see more of that as the season goes on. But if you're telling me it's El Nenny with Zinchenko to his left and Tommy Yasu or White to his right, and they're t- tucked in right next to him, 
we got all sorts of midfield options going on there uh, with Saliba and Gabriel Gabriel able to pass around the corner. Here's a fascinating stat. Uh, We are the only team in the Premier League to have more left-footed passes than right-footed passes. That's how left-sided we are at the moment, based off FB FB ref yesterday. That's a cool data point. It's it's phenomenal. Like City have more. You steal that from your stats guy in a civilian pod the other day. I forgot to. Yeah, I did. (laughs) I was doing a bit of prep for it. I never got never got to use it on that one. Mm -hmm. Um, But like City have more left-footed passes, but only because they've way more right-footed passes. They just have a lot more passes. But yeah, we've got. It was four hundred and something versus four hundred, even more. It was like four four hundred versus about four fifty in terms of left versus right. My point being, we've got guys on the left who pass with their left so they can pass around those corners. It gives us all sorts of space to play around our midfield and up the edges and uh, makes me feel much, much better about having uh, El Nenny in that spot with Sinchenko to one side, Tommy Asu. They're both fairly two-footed, and but Sinchenko's just so good in a tight spot under pressure. He's a great release valve for El Neni and definitely a huge mitigation for what happens if it's El Neni for a run of games. Yeah, I think it's a really, really tricky time for the club and the manager because they're going to have to be really sober in their analysis. They're going to need to go full whiskers because they're going to need to... Like, we're off to a good start, two good games. And oh, by the way, it could get better. Right, we still have Bournemouth, we still have Fulham, we still have a, a mediocre Aston Villa team in August, and then it's United, Brentford, and Everton. And then you get in October, and I believe in October we've got Spurs, we've got Chelsea, we've got City, we've got Liverpool, um, or at least you know three three of those four. So if you if you can't see the team in a clear eyed, sober way and go full whiskers a little bit now, it, you got to make sure you see the signal through the noise because we're gonna. I hope continue to play great and I hope continue to pick up max points week in, week out in August. It will get harder and we want to make sure that we've assessed this clearly, seen where the potential failure points are. Because again, if we make no signings, I still see us having a chance to finish top four and maybe even a, a really good chance, maybe be favorites for it. But if we strengthen, especially in the couple areas that we we think there are weaknesses, I think you take that chance, you consolidate it, and then you just add the little whisper, the little possibility of maybe a slightly more special season. And you don't want to let wins early in the season against teams that that are you know maybe a bit weaker overwhelm your ability to to accurately assess where we are. So, uh, um, Tim, final thought there, yeah, yeah, and and like don't forget we do have January as well. So if like something happens to say Thomas party, for example, and it happens in, I don't know, November, December, there is another opportunity there um, to buy someone. And, and that goes for the wide forward position too, I guess. I, I still consider that a bit more urgent, but in the midfield role, like, I, I think you could say, let's roll the dice on half the season. And by the way, there's no football for like a month um, from November to December. So what you're really gambling on if you're looking at the January window is keeping people fit until mid November. And then basically it shuts down until the January transfer windows open anyway. 
Yeah, I do. I do think we have a real window that we have to go for here. You can't assume, oh well, if we don't do it next this year, we'll do it next year in the summer. Like they got to get this forward uh, because I think we're pretty thin up front. They've. Uh, I don't normally say this. This is not. I'm normally much more patient. You wait for the right guy. Blah blah blah. They've got to go and find the right guy. They have got to have done their homework. Um, I don't think you get these windows where you've got the right team at the right level ready to go. You know, next summer we may have one or two, you know, Gabriel Magliesh to somewhere in Italy might be on. This player might want to do this. Uh, you know, frustrations from not having achieved top four for another year. Like, here's a window. You got to go for it. Uh, it's kind of a no excuses um this isn't January. You don't say, well, you wait for the right player. There's a world full of players. You need to go and find yourself a forward, and we need to have the depth. Um, yeah. This is the window. You never go full whiskers, but sometimes being a bit of a worrier yep. can help you ensure that you're not just wearing rose-colored glasses, right? And I, I... I find myself right now believing that the team as currently constructed can go and achieve great things. Yep. But that may be even more reason to add to it, right? Like last January, they may, you know, they may have felt like to your point, Paul, like we're still just building something. We can't get exactly what we need this January. Let's see what we can do. You may disagree with it. You may not. But right now, if we're on the brink, you, you don't throw seasons away, I guess would be my final point, right? Yeah. We as sometimes I think when I talk about squad building, oh, over seven years, you're trying, but you know what? Every season matters. Yes, you have to have a project and yes, you have to build your squad methodically. And yes, you have to be rigorous in the application of your principles, but you can't throw seasons away. They count. This season counts. And all of us who care about Arsenal right now are sitting here thinking this could be a special one. And the club can't just afford to be like, well, it could be a special one, but you know what? Really, our target was two seasons from now. You can't do that. Because also, you don't know what the other clubs are going to do. You may not have known that United were going to be a dumpster fire this season, that Chelsea might take a step back because of the Todd Bowley situation, that Liverpool might be in a down cycle because of you know the, the amount of effort they've had to exert the last few seasons. And suddenly you're saying, you know what? It's here for us now. So let's take it. And I hope they will. All right. Let's leave it there. Um... We have, gosh, we got a lot of good stuff coming out. Obviously, there'll be instant reaction after Bournemouth on Saturday, which hopefully will prove to be another very fun day. I think right now the manager just needs to keep the players' feet on the ground, head out of the clouds, because otherwise they should have the talent, the capability, the tactics to go and, and make it another fun day for all of us. We'll leave it there. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Paz. Woohoo! Tim's on Twitter. Smurda. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter. Yankee Gunner, we love you. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal's handborn. No. Nope.